Hello, Mr. Brown. Are you there? Yeah. How are you doing, Wes? Can you hear me? Um, yep, I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. I actually just got done working out, so if I'm a little out of breath, I apologize. <laughs> nice. What kind of workout did you do? A uh, little bit of arm wrestling training, uh, getting ready for uh, Mexico in February. I got asked to join uh, Team USA. So. Sweet. That's pretty cool. Yep. What does a arm wrestling workout consist of? Well, that's uh, interesting you ask because I get that question a lot, and uh, it's not your typical, um, I guess, bodybuilding or weightlifting workout. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, range of motion, reps, and weight. Um, See, so basically, typically, if you're just wanting to build strength and size, you know, you're going to do like full range of motion somewhere between eight to 15 reps, depending on what you're looking to do. Sure. Well, with arm wrestling, it's the exact opposite. You want to go for extremely heavy weight, very low reps and very little range of motion. So it's, you got to kind of, I don't know, I guess trick your brain a little bit and not go past a certain uh, range of motion, which is about halfway at best. Gotcha. It's a little odd and people, you know, kind of look at you weird, like, wow, what's that guy doing? You know, I've never seen that before. And, and just the, the uh, overall, like, workouts, I guess you could call them, are just so much different. You know, you're doing pronation and supination type of training where you're, you're rotating while you're lifting. And it's just, it's not the typical average workout that you see a lot of people doing. I feel you. I understand why you would do low reps because it's the energy system used. It's going to be uh, a high energy short um high intensity you know high energy short duration energy system right as opposed you know endurance sports but why the short range of motion is that because it's a tent it's a tension type of strength you're using exactly in your competition yeah it's um like with you um it's it's basically the same concept i guess you will uh as mma like you don't i mean you want to be strong you know, but you also want to have endurance and good conditioning, you know, and what we call that is strength um, endurance. So um, basically, you know, you're wanting to be strong for five rounds, you know, because you don't want to gas out in the first round, you know, so you got to be, you got to be able to go with those high strengths, you know, intensity burst throughout the whole duration of the fight. Well, arm wrestling is no different. Sometimes you'll get a tournament that lasts eight, 10 hours long, you know, and if you're just strong for one rep, you know, you can do a lot of weight one time. Well, that's great because you're going to annihilate the first guy you arm wrestle. But by the time you get to the, the final round, you're burnt out. Um, and the, the low low range of motion and the extremely heavy weight, like you're basically, um, you're wanting to either max out, you know, for one to three reps um, and do a couple sets of that. Or um, mm -hmm. you're wanting to go about 10 to 20% of your max and do type of a negative um, where um, your your maximum tension is on your muscles, and that in turn puts puts strain on your tendons, which strengthens your tendons. Because arm wrestling isn't about who has the biggest biceps, you know, or who can curl the most weight. It's about who has the stronger tendons. It's all strictly a tendon game, which is kind of weird. And interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You see the um, you see those guys like the bodybuilders. Um, so to speak, I love arm wrestling guys like that, that, you know, or 200 and whatever pounds ripped and shredded look like, you know, they can bench 500 pounds. Um, you know, those guys are fun to arm wrestle. The guys that 
look like they work out, but not a whole lot and kind of soft looking. Those are the guys you got to watch out for. Cause you know, they're, they're really working hard in the gym as far as arm wrestling goes. And, uh, it's a funny story because, uh, back when I first started, um, I was like 280 pounds. I was kind of just transitioning from bodybuilding and I could bench a lot. I was really strong. I annihilated everybody in this tournament, won the overall super heavyweights, everything. I get down to this little iron worker who is about probably your height, like 160 pounds, didn't look like he even touched a weight. And I'm like, yeah, come on. You know, I took him light, just like you're not supposed to do in arm wrestling or fighting. You don't judge a book by its cover. And uh, mm-hmm. the dude throttled me, ended up winning the overall, took his, took the trophy home, which was taller than he was. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned the hard way real quick, you know. So That's pretty crazy, man. <laughs> that's, that's Wow. <laughs> yep. Um, for the people out there listening, um, this is Nick Brown. This is um, he's he's a professional MMA fighter. Um, I knew him when I I knew of him when I first got into fighting, um, and then I eventually met him. I actually met him formally on a job, and we just started talking about fighting and how we love fighting and worked with him on this job and had a good time. And we just maintained a friendship, um, from afar for a long time. Um, he had some things come up and he got out of MMA, but, um, he found his path into arm wrestling eventually. So it's really kind of a neat story. Do you want to start? Where do you want to start, Nick? Well, um, I guess the best place is with any story is just start at the beginning. That way you can kind of get a whole gist of basically just, you know, my adversities, what I had to overcome in life, just as everybody does. Um, every story is different. Um, but I think uh, my story is best told from the very beginning. And I'll just briefly go through it because obviously we don't have all day. Um, you know, it takes a while to get into the, all the details and everything like that. So I'll just give the bullet points, start at the beginning, and we'll just go from there. Sure, that sounds good. Um, I like to go in chronological order, too, and just shoot from the hip, and I might stop, and if I something pops out, I might ask you about it. Yeah, not a problem. All right, so this starts back in high school. Um, I graduated in 2000. Um, this happened my senior year, uh, which is like the start of my injuries, like my major injuries, I guess. Um, I wasn't that great athletically. I always had to really bust my butt and go over the top just to be barely above average. Um, but what I did lack in certain abilities, I made up for in jumping abilities. Um, I could literally hit my head on a 10 foot rim. You know, I had pretty good hops. Um, so with that being said, we were goofing off, uh, during practice one time, I wanted to see if I could jump from the free throw line and still dunk. And, um, I basically attempted it. Um, my feet swung up, I hit the back of the backboard because I was goofing around Well, my hands were sweaty and slipped off and I fell on the basketball court on, on my head and got a pretty bad concussion from that. Um, so that started it. Um, long story short, I eventually uh, got a, a full scholarship for basketball to college and uh, ended up having a heart attack during practice um, just before the season started. And uh, come to find out I had the same kind of heart complications that another kid had in Indiana who died about a year and a half previous to that. So they said that I couldn't continue basketball because it was a high endurance sport. 
um, but I could honor my full ride and still go to school there, which I opted out of because I knew I was going to get into construction anyway. Um, so then I transitioned into bodybuilding because um, I basically wanted to strengthen my heart and, you know, get it stronger and try to overcome this whatever. It was a, like an arrhythmic heartbeat, you know, skipped a beat during high intensity. So I thought, well, bodybuilding is kind of high intensity, but it's not endurance type of activity. So did that for sure. a little bit. Um, a guy came to me and said that there's a tough man contest, which is the barroom boxing is what I call it. Um, tried that for a little bit because I was, I, I never really got in fights in school or growing up. So I didn't, I was kind of nervous, didn't even know if I could take a punch. Um, found out through going through that tournament, I ended up winning the heavyweight class. Um, even though I had no experience in boxing, I was basically self-taught and watched a lot of Mike Tyson videos and tried to mimic his style. <laughs> And uh, did pretty well in that, knocked, a, knocked everybody out in usually the first round and realized I could take a punch. So Tell everyone what tough man competition is. Right. Because some people, you know, people ask if you do UFC mm -hmm. and you're an MMA fighter. There's so many combat sports nowadays. And what is a tough man competition, just so people know? Okay, tough man competition <laughs> is – what I would best describe as um, just anybody and that has the willing to sign a waiver, put some boxing gloves on and headgear and step in a ring and just go for three one-minute rounds. And that is literally all it is. Um, they really kind of shy away from if you – like they wouldn't let me or you now get in one because we are a professional. Um, it's basically just strictly amateur, just guys off the street, whoever wants to get in there and give the crowd a show. That's this is anybody from truck drivers to uh, karate bill to <laughs> right pretty much yeah, yeah. taekwondo is is welcomed <laughs> but yeah that's basically it so with that being said i i was like hey you know i'll, I'll try my shot at mma because i i was i was a better stand-up wrestling background other than the christian academy that i went to um, they kind of dabbled in it a little bit, but it wasn't like nothing elite, like some of your, you know, 1A and, and 2A schools. But um, so I, I didn't really like the concept of wrestling until I got into MMA and, and got into jiu-jitsu and, and things like that. But I wasn't very good, like separated by itself. If I just did jiu-jitsu, I was pretty well-rounded. If I just did Muay Thai or kickboxing, I was really superb at, at kickboxing because I always say that my kicks were better than my punches. I mean, I could punch hard and fast, but I could really, really kick hard. Um, so I did well at Muay Thai competitions and kickboxing. Gotcha. But it was just the transition. Like, when I got in the cage, you know, I mean, I, I won a couple more fights than what I lost, but I just – it was weird for me to transition from the ground to the stand-up and vice versa. I don't know why. I just – I couldn't make the connection. Do you mean, like, when you're – in an MMA fight where you used the kickboxing, the wrestling, and the jiu-jitsu all in one, it was hard to know that you were doing those all-in-one competition and use them simultaneously, basically? Exactly, because, you know, when you when you start off, as anybody knows that's watched MMA or UFC or any of those combat sports, you always start on the feet. So I would, like, hyper-focus on just that. So then when I would get locked up or, um, you know, a double-leg takedown or something and go to the ground, I would be like, holy crap, now I got to switch my mindset and, you know, totally 
it was just, it was weird for me to do that. I, I didn't have to think when I was uh, standing up on the ground. I always had to think so that whenever I had to transition and start thinking, that's when I would just, I'd get out of the fight. Gotcha. Fish out of water. Exactly. Yep. It's like they say whenever uh, like an MMA fighter um, will challenge a boxer and the boxer always thinks that they can take the MMA fighter. Well, yeah, if it was just a boxing match, I, yeah, you're, you're probably eight out of 10 times maybe going to take on the MMA fighter unless he's really good at boxing. But in an MMA fight, boxer doesn't stand a chance because they go to the ground. And run. <laughs> yeah. And that's another thing people don't understand about MMA is that you got, I mean, you could look at, I think it was UFC one. They had uh, Art Jimerson. Mm-hmm. I think it was Art Jimerson. The boxer that fought Hoist Gracie, he had like one boxing glove on. <laughs> yep. Yep. And everybody's thinking, you just wait and see one punch. And right. this guy wearing the pajamas getting knocked out. <laughs> well, I'm sure Art Jimerson would knock Hoist Gracie out if they were standing and trading, but exactly, it's not way more dynamic in MMA. Mm-hmm. You take these guys that have mastered kickboxing, boxing, or even jujitsu and wrestling, and you put them in a dynamic situation where anything can go wrestling strikes, arm bars, triangles, hip tosses. All of a sudden, their art completely changes when the rules completely change. Exactly. On well, another perfect example, Matt Hughes versus uh, GSP. I mean, uh, look how that ended up. You know, he, he wanted to stand yeah. last time before he uh, retired. He wanted to stand with him and show that he could trade punches with him. And that ended very badly for Matt. You know, yeah. he was this great champion and really great at MMA, but he was better on the ground, you know, and George St. Pierre was just better on the feet. And he just, you know, Matt took himself out of his own game by deciding to trade with him. And, you know, he should have just stuck to what he knew. But, I mean, that's – yeah. For anybody and anything, really. Um, I just, I respect the game and, and, and the fighting game as far as MMA because, you know, anybody can be good at one thing. You know, it's real easy to be like, yeah, I'm a striker or I'm jujitsu or whatever. But to, ha- to be like um, Fedor Emelianenko always said, I'm not a black belt in anything. I'm a brown belt in everything. You know, and that's why he was so good and so hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so true. Um, I had this, my last pro fight, it was four months ago, and I ended up um, submitting the guy with a rear naked choke in, in under three minutes in the first round. But, and, and I looked like, you know, Marcelo Garcia out there doing jujitsu, but if you take me and look at me a couple months prior to my fight where I'm training with world champions in just a jujitsu gym where it's only jujitsu, I'm getting mopped. I'm getting mopped. Hey, and those jujitsu guys are whooping my butt, but, and I'm not as good at jujitsu as those guys, but you want to start adding in boxing and wrestling and then getting hit and everything. All of a sudden my jujitsu gets a lot better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think I had a, a trainer. I um, can't remember his name. Uh, when I was training in Vegas, he uh, 
he, he said something kind of similar to that as far as um, – because I was grappling with uh, some of those top guys down there that were UFC champions. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, you, you might feel like, you know, you're a white belt right now. But he's like, if we were adding punches into this, that black belt would go to a brown belt. And then you hit him again, that brown belt's going down again. You know what I mean? So every time you punch a guy that's just Brazilian jiu-jitsu – you know, it takes away a little bit of his training, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's true to some extent, you know, unless they are like the Brazilians who train while they're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu to getting punched while they're, while they're trying to grapple as well. I mean, those guys are good at what they do, but. Even look at Hoist Grace, even look at those Gracies. I mean, Sakuraba, <laughs> yeah. he came Hoist, he beat Hoyler. I think he beat another one of the Gracies. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, you know, that jiu-jitsu, all you needed was jiu-jitsu. And you could beat everybody in UFC 1, 2, and 3, but all of a sudden you got a guy that knows just a hair of grappling and just a hair of boxing and just a hair of Muay Thai and wrestling. Right. And it actually hurt you badly. You're, you're, you know what I mean? You can't answer the bell for <laughs> one of the thrown in the towel. Like, yeah, it's changed the – it's changed the conception on fighting so much. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, how far did you end up going with your MMA career, Nick? Um, well, I mean, I didn't go like real far. Um, like, I don't know if you ever knew Jermaine Andre. He was in one like the earlier UFCs, uh, short stock. Uh, black guy had a Mohawk, like, dreadlocks or whatever yeah um uh, i kind of know yeah i kind of know who you're talking about yeah he was more like strictly just like a muay thai fighter but i mean he did okay in the ufc he just it was uh short-lived um i actually did a fight with him down in st louis which was pretty crazy i think it lasted two and a half rounds or something. He ended up cracking one of my ribs because that guy trains with a banana bag full of like crushed up rocks and sand. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The guy can kick he in half. Uh, hey, you there, Nick? Yes. You fought Jermaine Andre then, right? Yeah. You know, and I see that it was at RFL Unfinished Business on October 4th, 2006. Yep. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he he was a beast. <laughs> Not gonna lie, I wasn't uh, prepared for that. And, and like I said, I'm really good at Muay Thai, and and you know I can take leg kicks and um, you know kicks to the the midsection or whatever. But when he when he caught me, like because I cl- I made the I made the bad choice of you know basically he's like I think five nine or something. I mean he's not really tall, maybe even five six or five, five seven. seven. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rather than just using my reach, because I'm 6'4", and just keeping him off of me, I just, I don't know why I like to clinch and throw knees. Yeah, it's just fun. Um, and I didn't want to trade kicks with him, because, I, like I said, I'd seen his training, and, and he had tree trunks for legs. So I made the stupid decision of clinching with him, trying to throw a knee. He just popped me off, and then he's like, okay, that's that was a good knee. Let me try one. And he, he clinched me and just drilled me right in the left side, and, and I just heard a crunch, and I was like, yep, yeah, I'm done. Couldn't breathe. <laughs> and he took me out from there. But uh, it was a good experience. And, you know, that was like probably the top uh, as, as far as what I'd say, other than uh, Natu Vicenia, 
um, who was like 10 and 0 king of the cage champ. And now is good friends with me. He's also uh, now a Nashville country singer. Um, he's got songs on Spotify and, and does really well with that. But um, anyway, he's a Samoan. He's a, yeah, he's a he Samoan is. country singer. <laughs> and he's, he's very good. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, that was other than that, um, like I said, that was probably the top um, other than getting asked to uh, go train at Extreme Couture down in Vegas. That was a good highlight. That was just strictly training. Um, sparred with a lot of a lot of good guys down there, like uh, Michael Whitehead and um, a couple other really big name people down there. But um, after that, um, I just came back home, took some time off, and then uh, not to after I fought him. Uh, was a couple months later, his trainer called me because I, I started training with him, and uh, he called me up and said, "Hey, I got this offer from Michael Patrick King, who owns Oprah, Doctor Phil, um, Sex in the City, and all that stuff. Um, he was wanting to do." another series of the contender that boxing reality show and uh it was called king sports so i went out there to california um got paid to basically just box out there and try to get ready for this uh show you know they basically set us up paid us you know like five thousand a month uh gave us our own personal chef uh our own uh dietitian everything um and we just would train six days a week and uh, spar 20 rounds a day. And it was really crazy because, like, being what here. What was it a, called? Oh, it was called King Sports. Um, that, that's who their um, thing, like, their business was. Um, but they were talking about um, doing, like, the last season of Contender. They were going to um, – his basic this, concept – I've heard of this. I've heard of this guy. He works with Oprah, right? So he's got a lot of money, right? Yeah, yeah. And he he shortly he died like shortly after um, I got sent home. Um, it was like maybe two years after. Uh, maybe yeah, it was about two years after. I think like two thousand ten ish, somewhere around there. I think. Um, but well, no, he's really cool. He's a billionaire, and like if you've seen this guy, you you think he was I, just one of us. How he dressed, how he acted. I've heard about this guy, and I don't know if this is the same guy. Jordan Maxey was telling me about him. There's this guy that works with Oprah, so he's got deep pockets. And he has this um, organization or promotion or something called All-American Heavyweights. I don't know if you've heard of it. But he takes former NFL players. He turns boxers. That's that's what I was getting at. His basic concept was – um, he could take any high-level athlete and make them a world champion boxer. Yeah. Yep. Well, I got to stop you there because at the heavyweight level, you can do that because it's such a power game because at right. – uh, like Deion Potter, I'll, I'll use him because he's a great example. Um, so, so Sensational athlete. Um, mm-hmm. Played wide receiver for Nick Saban. Um only been boxing since he was like 18 and not even that good of a highly skilled of a boxer but he's got the death touch because he's a great athlete and with the heavyweights you can do that because it's such a power game but if you Mm -hmm. look at the lighter weight classes them guys like floyd mayweather manny pacquiao they've been doing it since they were like four and you gotta have skills right it, it it is neat it's a neat concept to be able to take these guys that like 
you know, at a period of their life where like they're already adults and formed, teach them a new skill and make a moral class at it. But, but you were kind of part of that. Yes. And, um, funny story too, is, um, I don't know if it still stands, but, um, I was always like, I have, uh, like white muscle fibers, like white twitch, you know, so I'm very fast and explosive. Um, not so much on the endurance side. So, uh, what they would do is they had this Australian guy out there training us and had all these weird contraptions that he invented, um, for speed and strength and endurance. Um, but anyway, they would, uh, test our speed. Um, it was all electronic, you know, you'd get all, geared up and then you'd hear a bell and you'd have to react to that bell and punch a like a pad and it would tell you uh pounds per square inch as well as your reaction time and your speed um mm -hmm. well i had um like 0.11 seconds on my jab which apparently was faster than muhammad ali or something but you know everybody was like whoa you know you beat muhammad ali's record i was like you know you can't really judge that how long ago was that you know they didn't have the technology we do now plus you don't know how they even tested it. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. it was cool. It was cool that I could, you know, go twice as fast as an airbag shooting out of a steering wheel. That's awesome. But guess what? When you're <laughs> when you're getting punches thrown back at you, that you know that reaction time and that speed ain't so cool anymore. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's cool to play a game and be able to get the high score on it, but it doesn't mean you're going to be a champion. Right. So true. Um. Yeah, I remember people talking about like, oh, you know, Bo Jackson had the fastest NFL combine 40-yard dash. He ran it at a 4.1 something. And right. then Chris had it, you know, he had this time and and they were comparing them, but it was like it's not fair because they had a hand time with a hand timer. Right. Bo Jackson, whereas with Chris Johnson, the Titans running back, they actually have it scientifically engineered to where they start the timer like right when you leave the block and there's no margin for error. So even the fractions of the second are, are right. So it's not really fair to compare eras when right. they don't have the technology. Exactly. So yeah, I don't like that either. And it, it undermines a guy's legacy too. Yeah. That is true, and I, I, I don't like that um, aspect of it. And the same thing is, you know, Usain Bolt is the fastest sprinter in the world. Doesn't mean he's going to be a good football player. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Right, exactly. Because, I mean, when are you going to run 40 yards straight like that at a dead sprint? You're going to be stopping, turning, moving, juking, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Exactly. Um, so what ended up happening with that? I know it kind of – Flopped. It was supposed to be something, but it wasn't. It didn't end up being what it was supposed to be. No, and I don't know what um, how it fell apart. My buddy not to actually because um, they were ranting and raving about me out there. Because like I said, I was the only one out there at the time that actually had a fighting background. So yeah, obviously I'm going to know how to box and know how to do all this stuff. They're trying to teach these other guys from scratch, and I ended up having to help teach some of the guys as well just to how to throw a jab and how to step into a jab. And, you know, how to twist your hips and, you know, use your right foot for, you know, strength and leverage when you're throwing a right hand and just all this weird stuff, you know, that comes along with boxing training. And I was like, man, if you guys think I'm that special, you got to call my buddy and get him out here because he'll whip all your sparring partners you got. Cause they had uh, pro sparring partners that would spar with us. And uh, I mean, guys that sparred or that actually fought like Lennox Lewis and Tyson and those guys. And uh, 
you know, I, I was getting throttled by them. And, you know, I said, get this guy out here. You'll see, you'll see a true boxer. And they brought him out and he was knocking out the sparring partners left and right. And they brought uh, out there. What's that? Did they bring Natu out there? Yeah. Yeah. It was like about a month or so after I was out there or maybe oh. a few weeks. Yeah. Cause I told him, I was like, you got to call this guy and get him out here. Cause he'll impress you. I was like, I'm nothing compared to him. And they did. They're like, man, thanks for the tip. And he ended up signing a pro contract with them and fought on like CBS sports and, Damn. and uh, did pretty well. But, uh, yeah, what happened with me though, um, I was sparring with uh, just one of the guys, like, like we normally did every day. And every time I'd go to throw a right hand, my right leg would just drop out. Like I'd almost fall to my knee and it felt like my foot was numb. And I'm like, man, what the heck is going on? Like every time I throw a right hand, try to try to pivot and, and push off, it would just drop out and didn't feel any pain or anything. It was just, it felt numb. Like it was asleep. So we stopped the sparring match and came over and talked to me and said, Hey, what's wrong with your back? And I said, nothing. I was like, it's my leg, my foot all weird. And uh, they said, well, let's go to the doctor and get it checked out. Turns out I had, a, I think, a herniated disc or a bulging disc, and it was just pinching a nerve. And uh, they they advised me to go to this surgeon and this doctor and get the um, epidural injection, you know, basically to just take the swelling down. It was basically a cortisone injection in my, in my spine. Ended up costing like 2500 bucks. And, uh, you know, I was under contract with them. And they told me to go to this doctor. And then when I get back the next day for sparring, they said, hey, we need to talk. And they pulled me aside and said, we need you to pack your stuff and go because, uh, you know, you got this treatment at this doctor and you're a liability. I was like, you guys made me go there. I was like, there's no way I would have gone to that doctor willingly on my own. You guys told me to go there and get it taken care of. And I did. And so, I mean, long story short, I threw a hissy fit and got really mad. I was like, I don't need your damn apartment. I don't need your money. I was like, I'll find my own way to the gym. Just let me stay here and keep sparring. This has been my dream for a long time. And they just, they told me to go and get out of there. And so anyway, it was a couple of years after that, I ended up getting a settlement because they breached the contract and got awarded a pretty good sum, sum of money because of it. And that I was grateful for that, but I was still kind of sour about the whole thing and how it ended. I didn't, I didn't want that money. I wanted to get a pro contract, you know, I would have gotten a lot more money than what they gave me. So uh, that's how that ended. That that does suck. Um, sometimes you get there's a lot going on with that story. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, sometimes when you're part of an organization, you get for the betterment of the organization, you get the shaft. Right. You know, you get the roll of the deal, so they can keep the organization going and you mm-hmm. know keep everything hunky dory and that sounds kind of like what they did they didn't want to mess with it they wanted to say hey we got him treated that way he can't have any lingering effects or compounding effects from it but also we don't want him to accrue any more damage while here and we just want to separate ourselves from him right well what made me mad is like the doctor said you know i need to take a couple days off um they found um they did a full scan like a full body scan just because i was um under contract with them. And because I was a boxer, they wanted to make sure I didn't have any, you know, head injuries and stuff like that. Well, they found a concussion as well. Um, and, uh, I ended up, it turns out that I accrued about 20 some concussions that were confirmed by the doctors while I was out there. Um, never been knocked out, but they said that was actually worse because I would get a concussion during a sparring match. Cause like I said, we'd spar 20 rounds a day 
and uh, you know, I'd get a concussion and just keep fighting and accrue more swelling and damage. Um, and as you all know, you get a major concussion during a fight, you're not supposed to really spar or do any kind of head contact for like 90 days. So the fact that I got 20 some in you know, a matter of a couple of months was pretty damaging. Yeah. Do you think so, that was a blessing guys that left that place? Because I mean, if you're getting concussions, you're not supposed to do anything. You're not even supposed to ride yeah. a bicycle. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I'd go home every night after sparring and couldn't even sleep on my pillow. Like my head, like from the neck up to the top of my head would just pound and ache and I'd be in tears just trying to go to sleep, <laughs> you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was a blessing in disguise. Cause I mean, I love boxing, but, um, MMA looks more brutal as far as the cuts and like the damage you get, you know, but it's actually safer than boxing just because the pounds per square inch that you're getting hit with. I mean, I'll take a fist, you know, the size of a fist being hit to my face. As long as it's not my jaw right on the button and I'm not getting knocked out, it's just going to hurt right where you got hit. You know, like you get cut or you get a bruise on your cheek. It's like, oh man, he got me good there. You know, that kind of stings. But boxing, it's like every, no matter where you get hit on the head, you're jarring your brain and your neck, you know? So it's, it's doing damage no matter what. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do agree with you as far as being a blessing in disguise, though. I, I, it's just, I don't know. It's not a good sport, <laughs> even though I love it. Right. I know. I definitely agree with you. Um, what ended up happening after that with your um, career? What, what, ne- what trend um, progressed next? Um, after that, I, I tried to go back to MMA um, with the, I, I didn't let myself heal because, you know, we as fighters, we don't, you know, like to take time off we want to keep going keep pushing and we don't sweat the small little injuries or a little bit of pain because that comes with the sport um so i went back to doing that i did a fight in kentucky with this guy that annihilated my leg um he was a muay thai fighter he was a lefty and i watched a bunch of his fights he was about six five so he had a little bit of a reach on me but uh, he, he kicked me in the same spot on the left leg like 130 times as, as what i think they counted and i couldn't walk for two months it was insane. I mean, the guy had pinpoint accuracy with those kicks. <laughs> Were they left kick, inside leg kick? Outside. Was- it was outside. And, and I knew, uh, and I was baiting him. So that's why I took so many leg kicks, because I would, I would stick it out there in my left leg, you know, and, and just cock that right hand, because I was going to come with a straight right and left hook, because I seen that he, he was so susceptible to that. And I was like, man, come on, just kick me one more time, because every time he kicked, he dropped both hands. And I'm like, man, it's right there. And I'd, I'd be so close every time I'd punch just within a fraction of an inch and could never get to him. Well, long story short with that fight in the middle of the second round, he, um, I started getting, you know, I started figuring him out and he started realizing that. So he went to take me down. And when he did that bulging disc just ruptured, man, he just, I don't know how it happened. It was just the way he contorted me or something. And right when he took me down, I started tapping. I was like, get off me, get off me. <laughs> I can't move. Like it was bad. Oh man. Yeah. So I had to end the fight. So stretcher me out of there. What did? What did that take me through that exactly? Walk me through that. Like when he took you down, what what exactly did you feel? I know you said you couldn't move. What what do you? I mean, what were you thinking happened, and and how did it feel? Honestly, because that's a serious. Yeah, I thought I was paralyzed because I literally I couldn't even pull guard. I mean, I couldn't do nothing with my legs at all from the hips down I was like literally I felt like I was paralyzed 
And uh, what's weird is, yeah, he just uh, all, he did, all he did was grab around my lower back and my hips. He sucked me in and just basically almost kind of like a hip toss, but not really. He just kind of picked me up and kind of threw me and landed on me as well. So I don't know if with him having his hands behind my back right there where the where the bulging disc was and I fell on that, if that just didn't is, is what caused it. But it literally felt like I fell on a knife and just went right through my spine. And I, I mean, mm -hmm. I screamed a little bit. I was like, shit, get off me, get off me. You know, I was like, I can't, I, I was like, I can't move anything. <laughs> and he was like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And you know, what happened? And I, I was like, I was like medic, you know, just yelling for a doctor. And uh, they rushed me to the hospital. And um, I think I had one ruptured disc and uh, another bulging disc because of it. Um, oh my God. Yeah. So that transitions into the next part of my uh, disaster, um, you know, like all doctors do. And I really kind of disagree with and don't like the fact that they push pain pills so much. Um, you know, I just, I would get scripts for, uh, fentanyl patches, um, oxys, you name it. I mean, I've had it, I've had, um, probably over a hundred epidural injections. Um, and this other kind of treatment where they actually take these little robot arms and go in and like kind of burn the nerves um, to where it just basically kills and deadens the nerves to where you don't feel the, the pinching and the, the pain, every, everything short of surgery I've done. And, uh, long story short with that, I got addicted to the pain pills because, you know, after about seven or eight days, your body, uh, develops a dependence on them and your brain starts to think that you need them even when you don't, um, regardless of my injury. Um, I would take them just to be able to go to work or, just to be able to get my socks and shoes on. I, I don't know how many times, you know, my kids or my wife would have to help me get my shoes on just to go to work. And it'd take me a half an hour to get in and out of the truck just because I could barely walk or move. And I'm doing drywall and construction, doing heavy lifting and stuff like that. So uh, along with that, um, pain pills never really satisfied the, uh, they would never dull the pain. They would actually give me energy to be able to kind of push through the pain so um, with that came abusing them. And then, you know, I would have all this energy. It was basically like crack for me. Um, I would get all this energy and I would just work all day. I mean, sun up to sundown. And then that led into, um, you know, getting behind on bills because I couldn't keep up with the work because of my injury. And so I would work days on end. I mean, I wouldn't come home for two or three days sometimes and I'd be up all night working that whole time. Um, and that transitioned into you know, losing our house, um, having to move to, you know, basically a crappy farmhouse that wasn't, you know, it was basically termites holding hands, you know, and I, I got a brand new baby on, on the way and just born into that mess. So I worked like six days straight with no sleep. I mean, just go, go, go. And, uh, went to my wife's, uh, cousin's birthday party in Decatur. And cause she was like, you know, you got to stop for at least an hour, come, say happy birthday and come hang out with us. And I said, okay, fine. I'll come. I'll have one drink and then I got to get back to work. And so I did, I had like a long Island iced tea and it was like, that was just enough to like ease my body just enough to where my brain was like, you know what? We've been up for six days straight. You're done. You know, I'm shutting off. And so I was going back to my job and, uh, literally fell asleep at the wheel, no seatbelt. And, uh, my truck had a high performance chip in it at the time is a Chevy Z 71. And so it could move. I mean, it'd do over 120 easy. And, uh, so when I did that, 
I basically tail whipped a telephone pole that had a transformer on it that blew up and uh, knocked out like 90 people's power. Um, after I tail whipped that, I shot across because my foot slammed on the gas and ramped up into a tree like eight or 10 feet and just destroyed my truck. I mean, my head went through the windshield, all kinds of stuff. Oof. My driver's door was ripped off. The engine compartment was basically up on my legs. Um, <clears throat> it was a disaster. And uh, come to find out, this is from uh, a while back after, or a while later after they told me what happened, the paramedics and the cops that showed up um, saw me going through the bushes yelling for my grandma. And uh, <laughs> so you, if you got this guy that's 6'4 with his brains hanging out of his head yelling for his grandma. There's blood all over the passenger seat. So they think that she's with me. So they're looking for her. And uh weird story with that is that happened at like one, I think like one fifty nine in the morning. And uh, my grandma, uh, my dad's mom was down in Jacksonville, Illinois um, in the hospital. Well, she got up to go to the bathroom and just fell down dead at that same exact time. And uh, they get, my parents get a call saying, Hey, your mom's, you know, we're trying to, uh, we're trying to revive your mom right now. You need to get down here just in case we can't. And so they start getting dressed, getting ready to go down there. Well, they get a call a few minutes later saying, Hey, your son's just been in a bad accident. He's doing okay, but you need to get up here. And so they made the choice like, well, my mom's probably dead. You know, our son's still okay. We need to go see him and we'll deal with my mom later. Well, she calls my dad at eight o'clock that, that morning, a few hours later and says, Hey, how's, uh, how's Nick doing? I heard he got in a car wreck. And he's like, how did you hear, hear about that? She's like, I don't know. Somebody told me. And he's like, nobody, we haven't called anybody. We haven't told anybody. So uh, they get my phone that was attached to my hip that was facing the passenger seat at the time of the wreck. And somehow it took a picture of the passenger seat. And if you look at your phone and basically hold it up to a light bulb and it's the brightest light, just a white background, has a black silhouette of a person on it. And the fact that when the paramedics showed up, I was looking for my grandma at the time who had died at the same time I got in that wreck. In that wreck. That's weird. What did you think? What do you think all that means? You think that was something to do with the spiritual world? I, I mean, I, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. I mean, I know my faith. I know a lot of people may agree with it, may not, but it's, it's kind of hard to deny that. Yeah. There's a lot about near-death experiences and people temporarily traveling into different realms and then coming back. And I don't know if you were flirting with that realm, yeah. you know, because you between life and death. That is insane. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, the timing of it is. Yeah, I mean, how did, that's, that's my point. How do you explain that? And the fact that she knew I got in a wreck. And just got revived. I mean, she was dead this whole time. You know what I mean? So, I got to, you had all this, at this point in your life, you had all this stuff happen. Your dreams didn't, your dreams didn't come to fruition as far as MMA, as far as basketball, as far as bodybuilding, um, as far as all this stuff. Um you know, your family, it's, it's, you're not able to support them in the way you want to. Mm -hmm. And then you almost die. And then, so it's almost getting as bad as it could get. Almost. But then you get a second chance. 
Yeah. Did you feel like that? Did you second chance? Well, um, to finish that story, um, I will get to the second chance in a minute because, uh, after that wreck, I literally lost, uh, six months of memory. Um, August 28th. And the retrograde, retrograde, like stuff that you has happened. Yeah. I mean, it was six months. Yeah. The, the wreck happened on October, uh, 13th, 2011. And, that was October. My wife's birthday is August 28th. So that was a few months prior. I didn't regain what I call consciousness because like, I didn't know I couldn't remember until January 15th of the following year. So from August to January 15th, I don't know what happened. I mean, my wife said I was going to work. My wife, you know, my wife said I was going to work and doing my normal everyday routine. And apparently I bought two rental houses in December. Um, that I had no recollection of until January 15th when the guy called me and said they were working on him and he wanted to know what to do next. And I'm like, who is this? What are you talking about? <laughs> so anyway, that's a whole nother story. But um, yeah, as far as the brain injury, like it, it's weird. People don't understand, you know, how traumatic brain injuries are. You know, people just think, you know, like the football players, for example, they get so many concussions. You know, and people think, why do you go nuts? Why do you flip out? Or why did this happen? Or whatever. You know, the brain affects everything you do. It affects your thinking, your dreams, you know, just your body. You know, you damage a part of your brain. It's, it doesn't heal like a cut or a broken bone. You know, and it, it alters, like, the chemistry of your brain as well. When I mean, say you bruise the inside of your brain, you know, from it slamming against your skull from a knockout or a fall or a wreck or whatever. I mean, that doesn't heal. That's always going to be damaged. And your brain has to learn to adapt to that injury and kind of reroute certain things, you know, and that changes everything. Sometimes it'll result in a stroke or just um, bad moods, depression. I mean, you name it, it, who knows what it's going to do. Um, So, I mean, with that, you know, after that happened, um, it changed my way of thinking. I mean, it took a long time to be what I call normal again and how I used to be. Um, the way I thought, the way I acted, the way I treated my family just literally went to crap and went downhill after that. Um, and I felt like I had to do everything on my own because that's how I was raised. You want something, you go, you go work for it and get it, you know? And so that's what I did with the injury, with the brain injury, you know, the injury to my back, the addiction of the pain pills increasing and getting worse. I eventually, my wife, you know, left with the kids. She's like, I can't do this anymore, you know, and and she ended up leaving. Well, after that happened, a few days of finally waking up, um, you know, I realized like, what are you doing? You know, is this really worth it? And I literally went outside of that crappy little farmhouse we was living in and just screamed and cried out to Jesus. I was like, you know what, if you're real, if this is what, you know, you're meaning for my life, either heal me put me in a wheelchair or take my life. I can't do this on my own anymore. I'm done. I mean, I lost it. I mean, I broke down. I was ready to just end it. And, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, after that, the next morning I woke up cause I just, I went to sleep right after that. It was like not even the middle of the day. I was like, I'm just done. I was depressed. And I think I slept like 16 hours, woke up the next day. And that's when everything changed. Uh, I felt different. Like normally it takes me a few minutes to get out of bed. And uh, 
and just walk normal and stand up straight. And I woke up, I felt like I, I'm going to go to the gym. I feel like working out. This is crazy. And uh, so I did. And then I did that for a few days. And I was like, whoa, this is okay. Something's different. And uh, after that is just, like everything started changing my way of thinking. It was like, my brain was normal. My back was normal. I felt strong. I gained like, I think 50 or 60 pounds in a month and a half. So I gained all my weight back because I, I lost a lot of it just from not sleeping. My wife called Ryan saying, we need you. You know, this, this can't be like this. And, and we repaired our marriage, you know, we got back together and been insanely great since then, you know, and, and the biggest defining moment. And like, like you said earlier, realizing my second chance was that moment, you know, when I realized I cannot do this on my own, there's, it's impossible. And, uh, after that, I just, I gave it all to God. I was like, you know what? all this crap worrying, being mad, you know, frustrated over just little things like not having enough money for, you know, food or not having gas or just, you know, works a little slow right now, or, you know, I can't do what I want to do right now. That's so meaningless and, and just pointless to be stressed about because there's so much good in the world. And there's so many other people that are so far off worse than we are, even at like some of our worst times or what we think is our worst times. Um, just because it's not what we want at that exact moment. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like, yeah. when you stop thinking me, 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 and you start looking at others and saying, how can I help you rather than how can I help myself? That changes everything for your world. I mean, when you go out of your way to just help somebody else, you know, achieve what they want to do, whether it be training, whether it be, you know, weight loss goal or whether just helping them on a job, Hey, you need help fixing that door. You know, I got, an hour, I'll help you out. You know, that just comes back to you like tenfold, you know, and <clears throat> people don't realize that because they get so consumed and caught up with the social media lifestyle we all live now. Like who's on Facebook? Who's writing this about me? Who commented a bad thing about me? Or, you know, somebody's posting a political post and it's just all hate and division is all social media is created to do anymore. It started off great and had a great intention but now it's just getting to the point where it separates people and divides them and creates hate, you know, and it's great to see people's pictures of their families and, you know, things like that and the good things they're doing, but people, so many people use it for just a reason to just bash somebody else or, you know, say their political thoughts and views on, you know, their party that they believe in. So anyway, getting away from that, um, you know, me and the family was in a great spot we were doing good. Um, you know, at the time the job I had doing HVAC was not paying well. We didn't really have that much money, but we were getting by and we were happy and that's all that mattered. And, you know, I started, um, arm wrestling back like my sophomore year. Cause my, uh, my health teacher was, uh, he was in that movie over the top. Like he wasn't like in the movie, but he was an arm wrestler at the end of that movie. Cause that was a real, um, that was a real championship going on. They just taped the film at the same time. Well, uh, he was actually at that world's tournament, uh, when that movie was being filmed. And, uh, so anyway, he was a high class arm wrestler. He got me into it, um, in high school and found out I was really good at it. I dabbled in it throughout the years, never really took it serious. 
until um, basically 2016, I, uh, I made the choice. I was like, you know what? I've always done every single sport. I've always trained for every single sport. You know, like in high school, you go from like whatever basketball to football to track, you know, to baseball, whatever you're doing, but it's always jumping around and you never really focus on one single sport. And I thought, man, if I just devoted all my time and efforts, all my training to just arm wrestling workouts and training, I wonder what could happen. And I did that. And eight months later, I took uh, eighth in the world in heavyweights, you know, and I've literally worked out harder and longer than I ever have with my back injury or before it. And I've never been this strong and this, this much in shape as I am now. Um, and I think a lot of it is just because of my mindset, you know, changing the way I'm thinking, not feeling sorry for myself about my current situation. And, you know, basically all it boils down to, no matter what your faith is, I don't care if you believe in Jesus. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you believe in voodoo. The, the sole purpose is making that choice, you know, and that choice means you can either choose to just be mad and pissed off every day and just hate the world, hate everybody in it. Or you can choose to just look at everything differently and, you know, happy and just think of all the positive or turning the neg negative into a positive. I mean, everything doesn't have to be doom and gloom. Yeah. Does life mm -hmm. suck? Is life hard? Yeah. I'm no saint. I mean, I'm not the perfect Christian. I'm not the perfect person, but I make every day about trying to make the perfect people, you know, cause that's what it, that's what it means to just, be in a happy world with peace and just love and kindness is not just focusing on yourself. You know, it's creating that, that world, you know, and influence in that world to be a leader and let them follow you rather than following the other sheep. You know, you gotta, somebody has got to be a leader and a herder. If you're not going to herd sheep, who else is? Yeah. And we all, we all need people like that in the world um and we got to appreciate everybody no matter what their role is and if you're not where you want to be in life just appreciate that you do have a purpose you know in life um you brought up things that you brought up a lot in there and i want to kind of unpack some of it um with faith that's kind of a journey that I, I've noticed that men take when they become more mature is their faith journey. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, I don't want to lump kind of uh, pigeonhole us to a category, but like for guys like us, you know, tough guys, uh, you know, did MMA and bodybuilding and stuff. Um, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20, you're not wanting to talk about Jesus. You're not wanting to talk about turning the other cheek. You're not wanting to talk about showing any type of feelings or vulnerability or anything like that. Right. You got to be a tough guy at all times. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tough guy at all times. Yep. Uh, and, and, and you look at it in churches. I mean, church attendance for women. I mean, they go to church more than men mm. a lot of times. Um, what does that mean to you and, and how have you struggled with that with coming to terms with that between, you know, between that um, those two opposing forces of, you know, I am tough, you know, I, 
I am a tough guy. I could take care of my family. If God forbid something happened, I would step up and defend them. I am no pushover or slouch, but at the same time, I, I do have to turn some things over to God because I can't do it on my own. I am going to turn the other cheek if it's petty. I, I am going to, you know, be grateful and, and have some of those soft skills. How, how do you, how do you, um, I guess, um, how do you make sense of that? And how, how can you explain that to someone that isn't there in that uh, step of maturity yet? Um, the biggest, um, I guess the biggest way I can answer that is um, cause I've heard it before. And um, I think it's in a couple of Christian songs is, uh, you know, fear is a liar, you know, seriously. Like when you think about it, what is there to fear? You know, if you're a believer, you're not going to fear death because you know where you're going. You know, if you're not a believer, you're going to fear death because you're not sure, you know, it's kind of scary. Sure. So I guess the biggest thing is, is, you know, men's role in the last, I'd say probably a couple of decades, if not just the last decade um, has really changed. And it's not, and I don't think it's self-induced by men. I think it's more media brought on and just movies and sitcoms and I mean if you think about you know the dad role you know and a lot of like family guy or just like sitcoms in general we're usually the dopes that are sitting on the couch drinking beer and don't know what's going on half the time and the wife's running the show you know and I don't mm-hmm. mean that in a way like the man you know the wife should be stay-at-home mom cooking and cleaning and grabbing me a beer whenever I ask for it you know it's just you got to have that team effort you know it's equal you know, God created Adam and Eve to be equal, you know, and um, the thing is, is we've lost a lot of sight over that um, just in the last few decades, just because people like men in general are just afraid, you know, I'm not saying timid. exactly. And it's more, it's hard, it's hard to explain, but I think it's more along the lines of they're more afraid to, you know, offend people rather than mm-hmm. stand in what they believe in. Yeah. You know, they're afraid to offend their wife because they don't want to fight and argue. They don't want her nagging at them or whatever. They're afraid to offend somebody on social media because they're afraid of the backlash. You know, yeah. it's just, but standing up for what's right though, you know, if somebody's offended at that, um, if you're doing it for the right reasons and they're still offended at that, what does it matter? I mean, mm-hmm. because that person is either scared to admit that they agree with you or they're just mad in general and unhappy in their own lives because they're not being guided in the right way. Yeah. I, I think you kind of played on a a lot of things there. Um, Nowadays we, we spread and disseminate and um, information so fast and we are still figuring out how to handle it. Mm -hmm. And now Social media tells us a lot of times uh, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, and that's very subjective. I mean, what's acceptable to me and my family might be different for you and your family, or um, for me personally, might be different for you personally, or one group, or another, or one country, or another country. Right. Um, but social media will. Um, has this expectation or has kind of perpetuated this PC um, 
the expectation that you know we're we know everything you know we're the virtuous people and if we see something we don't like we're gonna get our pitchforks and our torches and we're going to shut down and we're going to put an end to it and there's no autonomy and allowing for people to have their beliefs right so when you're a christian and you have some and and being a christian if you're really a christian and truly believe what you want to believe it's controversial stuff when you say something you say something and then someone you know like oh you know like in the bible a woman should submit to their husband and and it's in the bible and and then people want to shout it or you know shout you down with a pitchfork it's because this pc culture it's like well wait a minute here you don't know exactly what you're talking about you don't know the whole thing behind it you don't get it you don't care you're just mad and offended because it doesn't go along with what you want right and Nowadays, everybody's afraid to just take a stance and say, okay, that's just what I believe in. I'm sorry you don't like it, but um, I don't care about this mob that you have. Mm-hmm. It's it, People are always um, – they're, they're quick to change and, and back down, and it's kind of scary stuff. Yeah. Well, that was, that was my point that I was getting at is um... – you know, I get if you get just offended or upset at something, but why, why do you think you got to take it to the next level and, you know, be so outraged that you're just going to just blast all over social media? It's like, everybody's got a different opinion about everything. You know, I have a red truck. You might not like the fact that I have a red truck because you like black or whatever. Why, do you, right. why does it matter? Outlaw. You know what I mean? All red trucks then, Nick. <laughs> I I start a, a Facebook page and a movement and we're just going to burn all red trucks. Exactly. That's my point. It's like, why? I mean, you're not entitled to your own opinion. I thought this was a free country. You know what I mean? If, yeah. if you can't just, you know, you want to wear a scarf around your face like they do overseas, then go live over there because you get offended at every little thing over here. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. I totally agree with you. Um, Another thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, for men particularly, we um, we have this strong need for identity. Uh-huh. And um, I struggled with this when I graduated college, and most people do. Yeah. And uh, men have the midlife crisis. You know, kids move out a lot of times or – I had the quarter life crisis when I graduated college. And when you do something that is so ingrained with who you are, and then that thing is gone, you don't know who you are all of a sudden, and you question everything and you become scared and uncertain. And, and you, you start even, I even questioned my faith because I became so anxious and uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, you lost, out on your MMA career, your martial arts career, it was such a big part of you. I was wondering if you struggle with any sense of identity and also what would you say or what piece of advice would you have? Because most people can't rebound very well when something was such a big part of them. Right. And then the next step is, and you, 
it seems like you've done something really well with getting into arm wrestling. Um, and, and that's good. And I think life's always about that next journey, that next journey, that next journey to look forward into the future. Your, your most biggest driving force should be the future. And, um, you know, just kind of with all that said, um, what, what do you have to offer, um, with your experiences? I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, that is, I think, one of the most defining factors in what I was touching on earlier as far as just men being so timid and afraid. And a lot of it has to do with just self-image and insecurity. And, you know, the fact that identity is the huge factor above everything else. I mean, you can pick yourself apart in the mirror and say, oh, I want bigger arms or I want abs or whatever. But identity goes so much more above and beyond that. I mean, that's the difference between, you know, basically being a low level employee, you know, scrubbing toilets to the CEO of a big company. You know, it's all about mm-hmm. how, how you accept your identity and how, and what you're going to do with it. You know, somebody could how think, oh. yeah, somebody could think they're Donald Trump, but if they don't run for office, they're not going to get it, you know? So if you don't take that next step and actually step into your identity and take authority in that, you're, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be complacent. You're just going to just settle and just give up. And that was, I mean, that's literally something I've struggled with my whole life and didn't come to terms with and actually develop. I'd probably say in probably not in the last like two years, I finally gotten a grasp on it and I still struggle with it just because I've been so ingrained on my upbringing, you know, and, and my low self-esteem or, you know, my little, imperfections that I think I have, you know, which nobody's perfect. We all have imperfections. What, what are you going to do about it? You're either going to, you know, build on them and, you know, bring them up and step in your identity as far as who God made you to be. Um, or you're just going to be like, yeah, I'm fine with it. You know, I'm just going to be sad and miserable my whole life. And, and then I'll just die and get buried. You know, it's like, the thing is, is identity is so hard to get somebody to realize. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I struggle with it even still. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, you can't do anything about the past or what's happened to you. All you got to do mm-hmm. is just choose like, hey, you know what? What happened to me sucks, you know, but what are you going to do about it? Can't change it. You know, all you can do is move forward and be like, okay, right. that didn't work, you know, and I wasn't meant to do that. But let's see what I was meant for. And it's the fear of failure is what stops a lot of people from fear yeah pushing past that and there there i go again with the fear it's a liar like what do you have fear you know you brought some things up that really um touch on some stuff that i've been learning about recently and getting to know more recently with my uh, biblical studies and one of my favorite bio- biblical stories is ex- the Exodus from Egypt when Moses took those slaves out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And that's a story of identity. Yeah. Uh, it's what you talked about with, oh, you know, I, I don't, you know, if you're not Donald, if you could be Donald Trump, but if you don't run for president, don't uh, agree with or believe that in yourself, it's not going to materialize. Well, kind of to that point in, in, in relation to that. The, the Israelites that were stuck in Egypt for all those uh, generations, they were not supposed to be slaves, but they believed it after a while. Right. 
they allowed themselves to continuously be slaves. And even when Moses was leading them out of Egypt, it was, hey, we want to go back. We just want food and water, man. This is too hard. We don't believe we can make it. It's too long. It's We need water. It's too hot. It's too cold. The Red Sea's in the way. Yada, 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 yada. And so many people are like that in their life. It's, it, mm-hmm. is, it is. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom was a prostitute. My upbringing sucked. I don't have any money. I was abused. I was neglected. I can't do this. I don't believe in myself. Mm-hmm. It's the language of the poor um, is what I like to call it. Yep. And you got to get out of that. And that's where that faith comes in. You got to believe in yourself. And you, in, until you have that belief and you expect more out of yourself and that, I never thought of it as I did it right. until you, it's that externalization of voices is what it is mm-hmm. as if you are what you want to change to become before you even change. Right. You want to be the CEO of the company next day at work. You go act like the CEO. Right. Dress sharp. You, you're on time. You give it 110%. Mm-hmm. That's how you become CEO. You don't act like the minimum wage employee anymore. You want to be the arm wrestling championship. You act like the arm wrestling champion. You go to the gym for 10 hours a day. You eat the right foods. You get not, you know, eight hours of sleep. You you do. all. So I really like that. Um, What would you, how do you break that mold? I I, I struggled with it. And probably until my early twenties, because I had those negative affirmations growing up and it wasn't Mm -hmm. until my early that I was just like, you know what? F that. Right. Maybe I'll to everybody else, and maybe I will end up being a failure, but I got to try. Mm-hmm. And I don't fail, but I'm going to give it my all, and I can live with that as long as I try. That's And I got to that point probably in my mid-20s. What, what would you offer up to someone that needs to get out of that mentality, that defeated mindset, that, that negative identity? Do you got any advice how to break that? Yeah, honestly, my biggest advice is um, what you focus on is what you materialize. And what I mean by that is you want to focus on negative stuff. You want to boohoo about your situation or your past or your upbringing. And you're going to focus on all that stuff and and use that as an excuse on why you're not where you're where you want to be today. Then you're never going to get there. But if you just literally let go, (laughs) like the Frozen song, and just let it go. And you're going to focus now from this point on, nothing else matters but what you're focusing on, what you want to materialize and what you want to bring to fruition. And if you focus on that every day, it's going to change your habits. It's going to change, you know, what you used to do yesterday because you're focused on your ultimate goal and you're going to figure out how to make that happen just by focusing on that. Like you want to be world champion one day. Well, guess what? You're going to focus on what it takes to be that. From here on out, nothing else matters. I mean, other than priorities and responsibilities, you're going to focus on what do I need to do in the gym? What do I need to change? What do I need to critique about myself? And look at yourself like from the outside looking in as, as if you're your own coach. Like, okay, I'm going to videotape myself at my next practice and I'm going to pick apart my own self, you know, and I'm going to see what I did wrong or why this guy got me in a rear naked or an arm bar. What did I do leading up to that? How do I change that? Yada, yada. 
and what do I need to critique about my diet? Cause I felt a little gassed that last time I was at training and, you know, do I need to take a day off just to rest and recover, you know, and just focus on all the little details that it takes to become a champion. Because I mean, anybody can just go to the gym every day and spar and then go home and then go get drunk or, you know, go do whatever, you know, but that's not what makes a champion. What makes a champion is, you know, living, breathing and thinking about constantly how to be a champion. And that doesn't just carry over into sports. I mean, that's everyday life. Like you were saying, you want to be the CEO. Okay. Focus on how, how, what it takes to become that CEO. What does he do every day? You know, does he stay up late playing video games? You know, does he go out and get drunk with his friends? No, he's working sun up to sundown, focusing on the business hundred percent all the time. And, you know, and a, a trainer once said to me too, um, he was well-known trainer, um, Pepe Carrera. He was, uh, out there at California. Um, he was watching me spar one day and I've beat this guy, you know, many times, but he, he got the upper hand on me one day and, uh, he came to me and he said, you know what? He goes, you gave up. I was like, what are you talking about? I, you know, I fought my butt off in there. He said, no, you quit. He goes, now let's see what it looks like when you don't. And that, that like hit me so hard that I was like, wow, man, this guy has so much faith in me that I don't even have in myself. He knows I'm not a quitter. He knows I'm going to go in there balls to the wall and just try to annihilate somebody. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be knocked out or knocked down. You know, you're going to have to die trying. And I lost that in myself. You know, I was like, where did I lose that at? And why is because of doubt and fear. And, you know, I was afraid like, Oh, what if I don't make it? What if I'm not a champion? What if I don't win this fight? You know, why are you fearing that you go in there and give it a hundred, hundred percent every single time and don't quit. Then you're going to see what it's like to be a winner. Right. That's kind of like, um, I'll tie it in to the, the movie over the top. Remember the fucking scene where the kid, the Sylvester Sloan took his kid in there and he was arm wrestling and his kid bitched out and got beat in the arcade. Uh And he walked, he stormed out of the arcade. He's, he's crying and his dad's like, fuck that. Like, I love you, you're my son and everything, but you're a fucking whiny brat. Right. And I need to do it. Now get in there and make me proud. <laughs> and he's going halfway. I know you've seen it. If you're a fucking arm wrestler, you've oh, seen dude, I've, it. I've seen that so many times I've got that movie memorized. <laughs> but he takes him into the back in there, to that snot-nosed bully or whatever, and he does the very thing you're talking about. Yeah. Just believe that he can do it, and then he and he put that kid down. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so cool. Yeah, um, having that coach, coaches and mentors are such so big in life right. with that voice um, as a youth, and then as an adult, you got to be that for someone else, and you also got to be that for yourself and set yeah. that example well. Um. I want to talk a little bit and you can, you can just, you can, I'm going to ask, you can say you don't want to answer it or you can skirt around. It doesn't matter to me, but um, I was kind of wanting, wanting to know about a little bit of perspective as to the world you saw growing up 
growing up as to like kind of what your dad had to go through to provide and then kind of what you've had to go through to provide and how it's changed and how like, you know, maybe back in your dad's generation or your grandpa's generation, all you had to do is you just, all you were able to do was work this shitty job you didn't like at a factory or at a farm, provide for your family and then die. It's kind of the expectation. But nowadays we've kind of mastered the things that we need for survival. We provide food at a very efficient rate with agriculturists. We don't need farmers as, as much anymore. Factory jobs, we don't need them as much anymore. You can do IT jobs and not have to break your back. And you can go to college and find a different job and be an entrepreneur. And then you can do things like podcasts and arm wrestling on the side. And then all these things to pursue your dream. Um, have you, do you agree with that? And then, um, and if you do, what would you say to other people out there who want to kind of explore those um, abundant opportunities that we have nowadays, just with anything and everything you could do that is outside of the norm and explore and do with your life to either make money or develop yourself artistically or, or whatever? What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, going back to, you know, the dads and grandpas and stuff like that, um, you know, they were raised to, you know, just go to work, bust your butt and, uh, you know, make that paycheck. And, um, that was basically all their lives revolved around, like you said. And, uh, with that though, um, in my eyes, like, that's, what's weird. I have a brother and it's like how you look at that situation growing up, how, how you were treated, um, what your parents did to provide for you, things like that. It's the little things um, that some kids notice and some kids don't. My brother didn't really respect that. You know, he looked at it as like, man, dad's gone all the time. He doesn't care about us. And, you know, I'm going to do what I want or whatever. Well, I looked at it as like, man, he's a hard worker. And, you know, we're, we're not well off by any means, but we have everything we need, you know, because he's out there busting his butt from 5 a.m. to midnight, you know, and, and he's got a hell of a work ethic. And I want to know a little bit about that, you know, and I started working with him when I was like 12 years old on weekends and summers when I wasn't doing sports, just because I wanted to see what he did. And, you know, I was fascinated by it, by how hard he busted his butt and, you know, the things we had growing up. Um, was he the perfect dad? No, nobody is, you know. Um, but he did everything he could to provide for us. You know, if we needed something, we didn't have the best of it, but we got you know, a version of it. And, uh, you know, that's why I try to mimic now with my kids, you know, showing them like, you know, yeah, you have to have faith in God and, and leave your problems and stuff up to him. He's going to always provide no matter what, but you also need to know that you have to earn stuff. You know, you have to work for it. You know, if you, you're not just going to have something given to you, like, I'm not going to buy you a phone just because you want it. You know, you're going to do certain things that I request in order to earn that, because I don't want you going out into the world and thinking, well, I'm just going to show up to a place that hires me and they should just give me a thousand dollars a week just for being here. I shouldn't have to do nothing for it. And that's what that's a huge problem nowadays with that entitlement that these kids are, are facing now, you know, and, and it's not so much their fault. It's the, the parents fault because they just give it, give them stuff just to shut them up. You know, they whine and cry. Okay, fine. Here, take it. Just get on my face. You know, 
if, if I did that as a kid, I'd get smacked across the mouth, you know, <laughs> say, no, I'm not giving that to you. You want it? Go, go mow some yards, go do something for it. You know, this mm-hmm. is quiet. Nowadays it's like, gimme, 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 you know? And then when they don't, they're, you know, trying to plan some way of like suing their parents because they think they're abused because <laughs> they don't have what their friends have. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, friend so-and-so has a car and a phone. Well, guess what? Friend so-and-so has a $500,000 a year job and I'm not here busting my butt. So if you want that, you can go work for it and earn it. I'm not going to give it to you because little miss so-and-so over there is going to find out real, real quick and fast whenever she gets out in the real world that, wow, people don't just give you stuff. You mean I actually have to work for it? (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, there is definitely a sense of entitlement um, that comes with, I want to give them more than I had and advertisements and, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or or what have you. (laughs) Right. Um, but that is definitely good. You, you do have a good perspective on it and I think it's definitely made you humble and appreciative and, um, it's, it's helped you get to where you're at. Yeah. Um, and the thing is though, like, you know, sorry to cut you off, but um, go ahead. To, fin- to finish my point, like, you know, when I mean giving the kids stuff, just giving them things that they want, like they don't know what they need. You know, they may want a lot of stuff, but the fact is they don't know what they need. You know, they don't need a phone. They don't need a car. You know, they need a roof and food in their bellies and they need to know that they're loved. You know, that's it. That's what they need. You know, and that's mm-hmm. what I try to show my boys. You know, I try to, because my dad would never, I mean, he may eventually say that he loves me. Um, he gave me praise every once in a while. I'm not looking for him to say, I love you. I don't need that. Um, I know he does because of how hard he works. See, that generation, that's how they showed their affection. You know, they worked their butt off to provide. And that was how they showed their love. They didn't have to say it because they didn't get said to them. And, you know, so I understand that. But at the same time, like, I want my kids to know without a doubt. I don't want them to have to wonder or think like my brother does and, you know, have that doubt. You know, I want them to know without, you know, without a doubt, like, because I tell them, like, all the time, I love you guys, you know, and I fill it with my actions, you know, because you can say a lot of things, you know, words are kind of hollow a lot of times. But if you back it up with actions and show them why you love them and show them how you love them, then, you know, that's going to go a lot farther than any materialistic thing you can give them because that's going to break. It's going to tarnish. It's going to rust, you know, and then they're mm-hmm. on, on to wanting the next bright, shiny toy, you know, but if they have that love and affection and they know who they are and you're, you're implanting that identity and constantly building them up saying, this is who I think you are and you need to build on that and you need to become a leader, you know, because one of these days you're going to have to lead people you know, you're going to have to be in charge, you know, and I want you to do it the right way, you know, and that goes way farther than any kind of job you can have or any amount of money you can give them or any kind of car you can buy them, you know, cause they're not going to appreciate that cause they didn't have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the best you can hope for. Yeah. Uh, one, another thing I want to ask is I'm going to shift a little bit, but, um, I don't know if this applies to you, but how do you deal with the haters? 
Well, that was uh, going back to what I said earlier. What does it matter? Everybody's going to hate something. I mean, everybody's going to hate something about you. What are you going to do about yeah. it? I mean, that's that's as simple. And I'm not being harsh when I say that. I'm I've literally, I'm a people pleaser, okay? I've all, I always thought growing up, oh, my gosh, somebody's mad at me, you know, and it, and it used to actually hurt, you know, and I'm not saying I'm conceited and I don't care because I do care, you know, but the problem is, is if you're going to consume yourself with, oh, my gosh, this person wrote a bad comment or this person hates me. I heard him talking and saying this about me behind my back. Well, I mean, that sucks that they're that miserable that they have to tear somebody else down just to make themselves feel better. I mean, rather right. than saying, man, congratulations. I saw what you did on that last fight. That was awesome. You know, or when you lost a fight, oh my gosh, man, you know what? Hey, you learn from this. You're going to build off of this. You're going to be better and you're going to whoop him next time or whatever, you know, build them up. Why do you got to tear them down? Right. Um, <clears throat> I think that's good that you block them out. I, it sounds like you block them out or it sounds like you don't take it to heart. At least you don't take it personal. How do you draw the distinction between someone that is where do you, or how do you, or where do you draw the distinction between, okay, this person actually has a legitimate grievance here with me and I should care and address it. And this person is just being hateful. Um, I guess the, the biggest thing I do, um, if it's somebody that, you know, personally or have known, um, I normally say, you know, I'll send them a uh, private message or whatever, a text and say, you know, hey, man, I've, I've seen what you wrote or, you know, I heard this. I heard you saying this, man. Is everything OK? Like, is there any way I can make this better for you? You know, just something sure. simple like that, you know, because it might be something that they just woke up and they got bad news that day or they lost their job and they're just pissed at the world. And they just happen to see something that you're doing that was great or they just wanted to take it out on you because they know you personally or. You know, they just wanted to be pissed off that day. You know, it's generally nine times out of 10, it's not, it's not directed at you. It's just coming and stemming from them and how they're hurt. Um, now, like if it's somebody you don't know, that's kind of hard because it can still, the same rules can still apply. But I mean, I always, you know, usually I won't say anything. I'll just be like, well, you know, that sucks. But um, sometimes <laughs> we reached out to them and be like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, is there a good reason why, or, you know, is there something I can do to make that opinion change or something, you know, just reach out. And if they just come back harshly at you again, say, well, Hey, I'm sorry you feel that way, brother. You know, hopefully your day gets better or, you know, just something. I mean, you don't have to respond with negativity or, and anger because that just fuels that. And then that gives them a reason. You know what I mean? Mm. So when someone's like, Let's say someone is spewing venom, you know, mm -hmm. they're really afflicted and whether it's warranted or unwarranted, do you try to kind of unravel that knot and see why they're upset or do you just, do you just say, you know what, I'm not dealing with this. I, I don't need it. It's negativity, you know? Yeah. Um, it actually, um, it kind of depends on the situation and what, um, what it's about. Um, mostly you kind of got to just, um, fly by the seat. Like if it's something political, 
it's one of those where you're just, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way. Everybody's got their own opinion. Uh, they keep replying, just ignore it. Um, if it's something that was personally done, you know, between them and you, um, you kind of need to address it, but in a positive way and just try to avoid any negative confrontation and just be like, listen, you know, we're, we're both adults. Let's just try to hash this out. Um, you know, if it's you and another guy, I, I don't know about your experiences, but I've, I've become best friends with people that I've actually gotten fights with <laughs> or sparred with because they've had a, had an issue, you know, and say, Hey, we can, we can take this man. Let's just step in for a couple of rounds and, you know, whoever comes out victorious, we'll shake hands and move on. And, you know, a lot of times it's worked out. Sometimes it hasn't, but it just all depends mm. on the situation and what, what it's in, uh, entailing. So. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. I had a, my last opponent, actually, him and I got into a, we fought and we had a competition and he didn't like losing and right. um, fucking sore. Once a rematch demands it. And I'm just like, we already did, dude. Um, and and I would probably give you a rematch if you would accept the fact that I defeated you the first time. But, you know, I'm not going to face you a thousand times until you beat me that one time out of a thousand. So you can just say you won. Right. And it's just like you just want to fight me until you win. And I get that. And I appreciate the spirit and I love that, but I, there's nothing in it for me. And, and you're just being a loser and I'm not going to do this with you. I'm done. I I've checked out. I, you know, I'm sorry you lost. <laughs> right. And that's one of those where, um, I mean, you could literally say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm currently working with a promoter and, you know, he's got some other things lined up for me. Maybe if I get a chance in the future, we can talk about it and then just end it like that and say, you know, I've got other opportunities. I can't fit you in right now. You know, that way he, he really can't come back with nothing after that. Cause he's like, well, crap, you know, I mean, what's he going to say after that? You're not just going to, you know, if you want to meet him in an alley or something, that's a little different, but. Well, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm like, I'm not going to fight you, but if you really, I'm not going to go and fight you like, in terms of like my career, be like, it doesn't do anything for it. My career, I don't feel like fighting a guy with three losses in a row and that I finished in three minutes. But if you're that, if you're that raw about it, you need to just uh, come to the Walmart parking lot and uh, <laughs> and, and and back me into a corner because I'm not even gonna fight you then. You're just. You have to back me into a corner or find me sometime when I'm with my girlfriend and threaten her or something. Then I'll fight you. But that's right. what's going to I'm moving on. Some people are like that. They're like uh, they're like dead wood. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And they're just mad. And anyways, um, I want to know what can we what can we expect for Nick Brown? in the future coming up. I know you got a really awesome arm wrestling career. If you want to talk a bit more about that, you can. Um, I ranked, ranked, what are you ranked in the world? I was ranked uh, eighth in uh, 2017. Should have been ranked seventh. I uh, actually missed the call because it's double elimination. And um, 
so I got beat the second time and was in eighth place. And I thought, well, okay, I, I guess I'm done. So I just went outside, was talking to people and they actually called my name uh, for the semifinal matches. And I, I didn't think I had to go again. So the other guy got seventh by default and uh, it was a really hard That's situation kinda... to swallow because uh, the guy had hurt his shoulder the previous match and, um, and I had beat him earlier in the tournament. So I knew now that in, him being injured, I could have taken him again, but you know, it is what it is. So I'm like, I'm seventh, eighth in the, in the world. <laughs> nice. You would have mopped them. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it could have been one of those things where he could have been saying that to play mind games. Cause they, that's, that's done a lot in, in uh, arm wrestling. You know, guys will say that like, Oh man, I'm hurt just to make you think like, Oh sweet. You know, I can take it easy. And then they throttle you. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things, but I did beating previous and that's when we were, you know, we had a little bit more gas in the tank. This was like almost an all day tournament. So, you know, we were both kind of worn down whether he was or wasn't injured. Hey, congrats, man. You got seventh. That's great. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So what do you got coming up? Um, well, like I said, I'm, uh, hopefully, uh, getting a call for team USA and, uh, our next match will be in, uh, Mexico in February. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Ups and downs to that is I've started to like try to transition to where I can cut weight to the 210 class, which is middleweight. How much? Um, that? It's uh, 210 pounds. No, how much? And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, train was going by. Uh, I got right now. Currently, I'm at 235, so I'd have to cut 25 pounds of water, which is easy for me to do. Um, I mean, I say easy just because um, I know it's a lot, but for me, like. I I've cut eight pounds in 20 minutes before in a sauna suit. Um, it's not really good, but 25 pounds isn't that bad. I want to get kind of closer to 230, So I don't have as much because 25 plus pounds starts really messing with your strength endurance and, uh, you start cramping and stuff on the table. But, uh, so I'm working towards getting down a little lower just because they've changed the weight classes this year. And, uh, so now super heavyweights are now being able to cut and reach the heavyweight class. So, it's really, really hard to do that since I'm not a natural heavyweight. Um, and since I can cut weight so easy, I'd rather kind of take my chances at the lower weight class and just see what I can do there. Um, but the downside is, is if I go with Team USA, I'm going to have to stay in the heavyweight class um, because a buddy of mine that was with them uh, called me and said, hey, you know, if I can get you to take my spot, would you, you want to do that? Because he's got some health issues and he's not going to be able to participate this year. I hope it works out for you. Are you going to keep us posted on when it is and when you're competing? Yeah, definitely. If it happens, uh, it will be on Facebook. I'll let you know personally. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. I'll have to start getting some sponsors and, and see what happens. <clears throat> Sweet, man. I uh, definitely wish you the best. It's been really awesome talking to you. You, you blew my mind. Um, before we go, is there anything you want to add? Uh, no, I wish, I wish the same to you, buddy, and uh, I know you're on the right path to uh, reaching your goals, and I uh, look forward to seeing all your progress in this country.